Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm author and journalist Laura Price, and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each week, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we look at everything from food and love to food and friendship, food and family, and even food and grief. This week's episode is Food and Passion with Sophie Haydock, author of the incredible novel The Flames, which came out in hardback in 2022 and is released in paperback in April 2023. The Flames is about the four muses who posed for the artist Egon Schiele in Vienna more than 100 years ago, and it's told from the points of view of these four different women who were his lovers, his sister and his friend. Sophie and I met because we both had our debut books out last year. Mine was Single Bald Female, which has just come out in paperback, and hers was The Flames. We met through another author and attended each other's book launches, but we'd also been familiar with each other's work because we were both food writers turned novelists. Sophie is an award-winning journalist with a really interesting background. In her early career, she worked for the Sunday Times as a copy taker for the late food critic A.A. Gill, who was famously dyslexic and had an extraordinarily broad vocabulary. So Sophie has some great stories to tell about her time working with him. She went on to write for publications including the Financial Times and she's interviewed authors from Bernadine Evaristo to Sally Rooney as well as being a judge for various literary competitions. Sophie also runs an incredibly popular Instagram account called Egon Sheila's Women which is dedicated to the women who pose for the artist. I could have talked to Sophie today about art, books, food, so many different things but we've chosen food and passion because I think it encompasses lots of different things. The passion required to be a food writer, what it was like working with the very passionate A.A. Gale, the passion that runs through the women in the novel, The Flames, and Sophie's passion for writing and, of course, for food. And simply the title, The Flames, I think inspires passion and fire, so it's a perfect topic for us to cover. So, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Life in Food. Thank you so much, Laura. That was such a generous introduction. So why don't you start by telling me what The Flames is about and what inspired it? Yeah, so The Flames is the story of the Austrian artist Egon Schiller and the four women who were kind of closest to him. So he was a very controversial and very charismatic young man. He lived in Vienna more than 100 years ago, and he was famous for creating these really bold and pretty explicit artworks that showed um, the women in his life in really... Um, exposed ways. And I went to an exhibition of his work, gosh, back in 2015, which seems like a lifetime ago now. And I walked into the Courthold Gallery that day, and I saw all these kind of incredible artworks. 
And I realized that these women had been seen very explicitly for more than 100 years, but that their sides of the story had never been told. So that was the point at which I decided I could potentially write a book about the four women um, who were closest to him. I hadn't heard of Egon Sheila, and I know nothing about art. So I have to say, if I hadn't met you and really liked you, I probably wouldn't have picked this book off the shelf. Um, but I have to say that I completely raced through it and I loved it. And it's it's one of those things, It's you, you really don't have to know anything about art or anything about history to pick up this book because it's a book about women and it's a book about their emotions and their passion for this man and their actions. And um, yeah, I just absolutely loved it. So, but what really, really impressed me was that it's a book inspired by real life people. So I wanted to know how on earth did you go about researching it and coming up with these stories and conjuring up these, like the passion and the personalities of these real life people? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think the starting point for me was Adele Harms. Um, she is posing for the artist in this really kind of sensual way. She has her head uh, tipped onto her knee. She has her legs spread open. She's wearing her stockings. And she has this really seductive look in her eyes. And I'd had this painting, this portrait of Adele Harms, um, on my wall at university. I'd had a kind of postcard that I think my mum had sent me. And I honestly, I must have looked at this postcard of this woman every day for about a year while I was studying for my final exams. And I never thought to question who she was or what her relationship to the artist might have been. Um, And it was only a decade later when I went to an exhibition at the Courtauld Gallery in London that I realised who she was and that she was, in fact, the artist's sister-in-law. So her sister, Edith, was married to Egon Sheila. And that instantly brought up all these questions for me. You know, why was she posing for her sister's rather handsome husband in her underwear? And I think it was this question that really was the starting point for the flames. The idea of passion, the idea of desire, um, this concept that she might have harbored quite intense feelings about the artist who she didn't marry. um, And she might have harbored some resentment about the fact that he went on to marry her sister. All this all this stuff that was swirling in my mind that day, it just made me think it could be the basis for a really powerful story that told um, the biography of Egon Schiller, and we would find out, we would discover him through the eyes of these women. And Adele really was um, the muse that first captured my attention just because of that kind of passionate look in her eyes. Yeah, well, it's such a brave thing to do to, to write about the emotions of real life people, but you've completely pulled it off. And I think we need to see more novels based around these historical figures coming to life because it's such a cool thing like and I can't imagine what they would have thought if they they could have read it or he (laughs) could have read it um so when we talk about passion we often think about sex and romantic physical passion which is certainly present in the book but there is also um a story of siblinghood and friendship in this book so what do you think are the different kinds of passion and what did you want to convey most in this book yeah, I think the the storyline of the two sisters who are caught in this kind of sibling rivalry as they both vie for the attention of their handsome neighbour. Um, I'm really glad that you picked up on the kind of passion between between the sisters because that's an imp- incredibly important plotline to me. Um, 
you know, I just I liked the idea that their jealousies kind of overflowed and um, the way in which they betray both each other and themselves in their own behavior. Both Edith and Adele do things that I don't think they would be proud of in their better moments. Um, But I think that this idea that love, you know, the love that we harbor for one man potentially, whether that's requited or unrequited, can really tip you over the edge sometimes and it can damage your most precious relationships and make you do things that you really otherwise wouldn't want to do um yeah I was just gonna say passion is responsible for so much isn't it (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) it really is and I think the thing is Egon Schiele was a very passionate artist you know he he was a young man when he was making some of his most famous artworks um he tragically died very young so he didn't have the privilege of having a long life in which he got to develop his um his his kind of concepts of of art and you know he might have taken a different route and become less sexually explicit in the subject matter that he chose to paint um but we only really see him until he's 28 and of course during that time his favorite subject you know, is his is his, himself. He loves painting himself. He has a real passion for his own image. He would definitely have been part of that kind of selfie generation um, if he'd lived uh, today. But also, his his favorite topic was women. He loved the female body, and I think his depiction of the female body is just incredibly harrowing because it's so real. The women that he paints have very long limbs and sharpened ribs and these boobs that are kind of wonky you know it's not this idealized portrait of a woman that is just kind of so perfect that she can't be real and I think that his passion for women really shines through in all his artwork. I'm interested actually now that you've said said that um you know your Instagram account Egon Sheila's Women which you've got I think over 100,000 followers do you know whether the majority of your followers are women or men? on that account have you ever no I have yeah. checked that it's really interesting because you would think um you know you're posting scantily clad women on Instagram um and you'd think the followers would be men but actually I think women really connect with his portraits mm. of the female form um it's really unusual to see things like untamed pubic hair on Instagram <laughs> um I don't know if I can say that but you know just this idea of the female body in all its kind of complicatedness and it's not kind of been buffed up to perfection and he saw that and he loved that and I think I think that's really interesting and I was a bit worried when I first started posting these um, images a few many years ago now I was worried that I'd get a lot of kind of creeps you know coming via Instagram my DMs sending me you know passionate messages about things that they wanted to share but I've had so little of that you know it's actually quite surprising um the most feedback I get is just how beautiful the artwork is how passionate Egon Sheila was how great it is to see um these depictions of the human form so yeah it's been it's been a really interesting experience because Mm. Instagram in particular can have some very dark corners and I thought I might have slightly ended up in there but luckily I haven't but it really fits in with the time because the way we're talking about body image now actually with wonky boobs and you know things like that it it fits in really well so 
it's Definitely. good timing for your Instagram account. So <laughs> let's talk about the food in the book because it's not a particularly foodie book, but you, I understand you did manage to squeeze in a few trips to Vienna to check out the food and what the food would have been like at the time. So can you tell me a bit about what, what we would have been eating in Vienna at that time? Yeah, I mean, Vienna, you know, is famous in lots of ways for some of its food. Uh, we know of Sasha Tort, which is the delicious chocolate cake. Um, we know that Vienna had all these wonderful coffee houses where people would go um, back in the day and they would talk about the big ideas at the time. And bearing in mind that it was Freud who was debating his theories on sexuality and dreams Um and, and, you know, the existence of the female soul, this was a big question um, 100 years ago that would have been people be drinking their coffee and saying, oh, you know, does a woman, does a woman have a soul? Um, so this was, you know, food in a way really was food for thought. And um, I, when I was there, we ate kind of schnitzel, which is obviously, you know, a classic kind of Austrian German dish. And there was lots of references in my research to things like black bread that they would have eaten for breakfast. Mm. Um, Egon Schiele's mother was from uh, Czeski Krumlov, which is a place that used to be Bohemia. So she was kind of eating some of this peasant food that I found. Um, I tried to track down old recipe books so I could see what kind of ingredients might have been used or the ways in which they might have been preparing this food and for me that was really fascinating just because you know it can be quite difficult to access um, resources about what people ate in the past and how they how they went about you know preparing these meals that was just the basic the basic kind of way in which they lived and sometimes that information is hard to get but as an author if you can get your hands on it I think it really makes your writing so much more authentic yeah and just also adds to the bank of information that there will be there for, for future generations as well That's so right, yeah. it's really cool so you you've been a, a food journalist and you're obviously passionate about both food and art what do you think are the links between food and art and also food and passion Gosh, the links between food and art and food and passion. Um, that is a really good question. I think, you know, for me, food and passion are just so closely interlinked. Um, you know, all the greatest moments in most of our lives are linked to food in some way. Um, and I just think, you know, food elevates. Food elevates our most poignant experiences and takes us out of ourselves um in terms of art and passion and art and food um you know as a food journalist I went to some incredible foodie experiences where you'd eat the strangest things I remember Bompus and Par yeah these great kind of immersive events where you'd go and you know you'd be you'd walk into a gin and tonic cloud or, you know, you'd be served really strange um, ingredients and you'd be made to look like something else. So perhaps a tomato and when you cut into it, it would be something completely different. Um, and I think that playfulness with food is just so meaningful. I think sometimes that, you know, when we when we disconnect a little bit from our lives, food becomes something that, you know, you just eat out of habit you eat for fuel um and actually playfulness around food linking food to higher aspiration or some kind of you know 
artistic expression is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What was food like for you growing up in your family? Yeah, I had a a really privileged experience of having lots of good food as a child. Um, I seem to remember um, my parents were very, you know, adventurous with what they ate and adventurous with what they encouraged us as children to eat. So my mum's kind of message to me was always um, try it. If you don't like it, you can spit it out. And today that just makes me laugh so much because I can just imagine, you know, encouraging a child to try something like really, you know, that they're obviously not going to want to eat and me kind of like taking a mouthful and being like, no, it's horrible. I don't like it. But I just I loved that way of learning about food. You know, nothing, nothing literally was off the table. And I think that um, allows you to be quite adventurous. You know, you just you're developing a palate. Um, you're working out what you do and don't like. I was always very much into spicy food, even as a child, and very kind of strong flavors. And today that has translated into me liking really dark, bitter flavors, um, which is, I don't know if it's unusual, but um, I know that if anything comes on my plate that's very citrusy or very sharp, I kind of navigate away from that. Um, And I think perhaps there is that kind of link to childhood where you're just you're pushing outside of your kind of comfort zone and trying new things. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand now that your husband is a very good cook. So (laughs) did that shared passion for food um, play into your falling in love at all? Yes, 100%. Um, I remember the first dish he ever cooked me was very simple. It was scrambled eggs with chives. And I was so impressed. I was, you know, 23 years old. I, this lovely man that I'd gone on a date with had um, kind of made me this lovely dish. And it was just so overwhelming to be with somebody who loved food, loved cooking. And, you know, that's, that's such a basic dish. And today he does all his cooking from scratch. He can always be bothered to make really elaborate dishes And the food that he makes has really, I think, um, shaped our relationship, you know, just, I don't know, it's just such a incredible thing to be with somebody who can always be bothered can always be, you know, I'll look in the fridge and say, Oh, there's nothing to eat tonight, let's get a takeaway. And 10 minutes later, there's this kind of lovely home cooked fresh meal in front of me. And I do think, um, interestingly, that having a partner who does cook and will always put fresh food on the table um, and who doesn't expect me to kind of do the same, it's made a huge difference to my life as a writer and certainly as an author, just because, you know, I have that freedom. I, I'm not kind of wedded to a kind of stove in that way, in that kind of way that many women's lives certainly in the past, you know, they were just expected to have dinner on the table when their partners got home. Um, and I feel, I feel very lucky to, um, be in a relationship where that kind of power dynamic is in reverse. <laughs> and I yeah. think it's definitely a lot of good. <laughs> and it's What's been very, thing? <laughs> What's your favorite thing that he cooks? My favorite thing that he cooks at the moment. He's he go he goes through phases where he gets really obsessed with one country, and at the moment it's kind of Japanese food. So every other night we're having 
you know, fresh ramen. He's cooking the broth from scratch. He's doing the kind of those lovely caramelized kind of custard eggs that get soy, you know, <sighs> preserved in soy sauce. Um, you know, and everything's everything's made from scratch. Everything's fresh. It's just such a privilege. <laughs> it's such a privilege to be on the receiving end of um, such lovely food all the time. And I think, yeah, it's something I'm very grateful for. Can I move in with you? <laughs> yeah. We have a few friends who say that. They're like, oh. <laughs> the downside is I have to do the washing up. So um, we've just moved to a house where we have a dishwasher, which uh, has made an astronomical amount of difference to my life. But yeah, for the last kind of 10 years, I've been washing up after all his kind of um, excessive meal cooking. So I've definitely paid something of a price for all the lovely food I've eaten, but it's definitely been worth it. Fair enough. And how did you become a food writer in the first place or a food journalist? Yeah, so after I graduated, um, I did English and French at Leeds University. And then I did a master's in journalism at City University in London. Um, and I got work experience at the Sunday Times. And after that finished, I just was determined to keep my foot in the door. And I I kind of stayed and I worked as hard as I could and I tried to, you know, do everything I could to get noticed. And it was a few years down the line that a role came up when they launched The Dish, which was part of their weekly supplement. But they were doing this kind of standalone food publication. Um, and I kind of put myself forward with all the enthusiasm and energy in the world. And I was really lucky to kind of get brought in at that point. Um, and I was working with A.A. Gill, who was the famous food critic. He had his kind of um, table talk food review, which was one of the most read columns in the whole newspaper every week. Um, and I got a column next on the same page as him writing about seasonal food. And that was such a turning point in my career because I'd never had um, as much exposure as that before. Um, I'd never been kind of expected to to deliver um, food related copy on a weekly basis. Um, and it was it was really such a kind of pivotal moment. Um, and I think it allowed me to kind of really tap into what I did know about food. And my background was in um, wild food and foraging. That's something that I'd been doing at Leeds University. Um, I'd you know, I think it was all a bit of a trend back then that people would go out and forage for, you know, wild garlic and things like that. And I became obsessed with uh, wild mushrooms at that time, not hallucinogenic, I might add, just mm -hmm. just good old fashioned wild mushrooms. And um, that led to me writing a blog, Absolutely Fungulous, um, <gasps> which <laughs> is now very much defunct. And that was my first real experience of publishing any of my writing, but certainly food writing. Um, and I remember that that led to a commission in the Big Issue North, which was um, really exciting. Mm. And The Guardian, I wrote a piece about wild food and um, fungi for The Guardian. And, you know, that was really how my food writing career began and progressed was was this kind of just strange niche obsession with things like truffles and morels and puffballs and you know, and it's still something I love today. You know, I if I go out for a walk in the forest, I'm always 10 steps behind everybody else because I'm inspecting 
the ground and the leaves and high up in the trees looking for, you know, chicken of the woods or beefsteak fungus. And it's all there, you know, you just have to know what you're looking for. But I'm so glad that I have that kind of um, niche knowledge because I do think it makes just makes everything really uh, exciting. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I wish I had that knowledge of mushrooms. I'd probably save a bunch of money as well if I could just forage them instead of buying <laughs> You've got to be very careful that you don't yeah. end up, um, you know, eating the wrong thing. I did also interview, um, one of my earliest pieces was an interview for The Guardian with a guy who ate um, destroying angel mushrooms, thinking that they were ink caps. And he came, you know, this close to dying because mm. it just destroys your... Um, your red blood count destroys your kidneys, your liver. Um, and he had this really terrifying near-death experience having eaten the wrong kind of mushroom. So that always, you know, it's a good lesson to really check and check again what you think you're eating because lots of them can look very similar. Yeah, I think the same might have happened to Rene Redzepi, actually. Yeah, I have to look right. that one up. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, so um, sadly, Adrian Gill, otherwise known as A.A. Gill, died in 2016 from cancer. Um, he was, I guess, like all good critics, he was very opinionated. His language was incredibly col- colourful. And by all accounts, he was an, an incredibly interesting person to work with. So what were you doing? What were you what was your work for him? And what was he like to work with? Yeah, so another great privilege of my journalistic career was working with A.A. Gill. Um, he, his reputation preceded him, and I was certainly slightly terrified when I got assigned the task of being his copy taker. Um, being his copy taker involved him calling at any time of the day or night um, and reading his uh, restaurant review to me down the phone, um, which I would record and laugh at all the appropriate places and kind of, you know, make all the right sounds. And then my job was to go away to type up the review and you know, a few days later to call him back and read it back to him. Um, This was hugely character forming just because, um, as you've already said, he had a very daunting vocabulary. So there were lots of words that I didn't know or that I couldn't quite work out what he'd said. Um, So sometimes there would be some very memorable mistakes where he'd say something and it would sound like one thing. I'd type it up and read it back to him and it would sound like the same thing. But then obviously when it went into print, it would be completely the wrong sentiment. And he had not meant, you know, whatever it was that I'd written and at which point you'd get a very serious bollocking. Mm. Um, it was just, you know, you're always on tenterhooks because of this really unusual way of working. Um, and Adrian was famously dyslexic. He he never wrote anything. Um, I looked back over text messages that he sent me when we were working together and yeah, just lots of very short, very succinct, very, um, you know, direct requests, you know, call, call now, spelling mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just such a huge personality. And I'm not sure that if you were trying to break into journalism today that you'd get away with that level of, you know, you just working in that way you have to be incredibly talented to to 
demand that you have this kind of infrastructure around you for the way that you write your columns. Um, but he was such a talented writer and had such big opinions, whether you agreed with them or not. Um, they were always beautifully expressed. And his turns of phrase around food and his restaurant reviews were so memorable. I think, um, you know, just his food writing was really out of this world. Are there any particular memories that stand out of your time with him? <clears throat> oh, with my time with Adrian, yes, there are. Um, we would go for lunch. I would have to book um, restaurants in my name um, because obviously if any restaurant saw that A.A. Gill was, you know, coming in that day, they would freak out and change everything about their menu and who was serving. So <clears throat> often we'd Often I'd book restaurants in my name and he'd turn up and a few times we went out for lunch together. And one time he, um, we went to the Wolsey. I he can't have been reviewing it, so it must have been for some other reason, perhaps when we first started working together. And he was kind of ushered into the horseshoe, which is this lovely VIP area where, you know, it's the best seat in the house, everybody can see you. It was Adrian's spot. Um, and all the waiters were kind of fawning around. And he ordered for both of us without asking me what I ate, what I wanted, whether I was vegetarian, which I don't think would have been allowed in Adrian's book. Um, and when the food arrived, it was this kind of raw hamburger. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, you know, like I'm going to have to sit here and eat this, you know, what is probably a beautiful dish and a real, you know, luxury um a luxury item on the Wolsey menu, but just not something I would have chosen to eat. And I had to kind of make this decision about whether I kind of politely pushed it to one side of my plate or whether I sat there and kind of consumed this raw, bloody meat and tried to swallow it. And I think I got about halfway through <laughs> um, thinking, oh, don't embarrass yourself in front of Adrian, don't do this. And perhaps I should have just said, you know, you know what, that's not for me. And maybe that would have impressed him more. But I was just a young journalist and trying to kind of not put my foot in the wrong place. So that's how that played out. But I'm sure he I'm sure he enjoyed kind of the prodding, if that makes sense. He liked to kind of aggravate people and get a response out of them. So I'm sure that was part of it. Yeah, I definitely got that impression from his columns, even though I never met him. Um, so he died from cancer in 2016. He wrote this absolutely stunning piece for the Sunday Times magazine, I think it was, um, about the medical experience he had. And I wish that he had lived longer because he wrote about it so eloquently mm. and like in, in such an incredible way. Um, and it was just that one piece, as far as I know, that he had chance to, to read mm. and to write because he, he died so quickly. Um, what, what did that feel like for you and what legacy do you think he's left? Yeah, I think Adrian's, um, death was very sudden you know he his diagnosis was very sudden he hadn't expected it um I remember getting a call from him on the Monday and I think at that point he hadn't I don't think he told his you know closest family to some extent you know he was he was trying to process this news in real time um and I think it was only a matter of weeks before he sadly succumbed to his cancer. And, and that was a real tragedy because, like you say, his ability to write about these experiences and mm -hmm. to put into words, you know, what it feels like to face your own death in that way was um, something that, you know, we all could have benefited from reading 
you know, his his take on that more. Um, yeah, I think it was a great loss to journalism and a great loss to, um, you know, A.A. Gill wasn't just a food critic. He didn't just write about, you know, nice restaurants. He also wrote about um, refugees coming um, across the channel. He would go um, to the jungle in Calais and sit with people, drink coffee, um, talk into the early hours. You know, he had a way of connecting with people that was very authentic. And, you know, his humanity always came through in his writing. And I think, um, you know, not to not for him not to have had longer. You know, I think he was 62 when he died. That just feels like such a a stealing of his potential and our kind of enjoyment of what he had to share. You know, I think future generations are going to enjoy reading Adrian's work. You know, he's not, he's not done and dusted. He's not somebody that you can just put back on the shelf and decide that he's not relevant anymore. I think his writing is incredibly poignant, incredibly timeless, um, full of um, deep understanding about human nature and yeah, I would implore everybody to read at least one of his articles or one of his books because it's a really enlightening experience. You have an amazing clip um, from, so you've still got all your old recordings yeah. from his um, dictation, haven't you? And um, you just tell me about one of those one of those clips. Yeah, so I still have about, you know, I was his copy taker for about 18 months until his death. Um, so I have these kind of weekly, uh, you know, recordings of him calling me, you know, sometimes he'd be tired, sometimes he'd be, you know, just back from a long trip. Sometimes, you know, he'd be rushing out the door and just want to get this done. Sometimes I'd be distracted and he'd kind of pause halfway through reading his restaurant review copy to me and be like, you know, you didn't laugh, you know, you've, why didn't you laugh at that point? And I'd kind of come back into the moment and think, oh gosh, I'd kind of zoned out there. Um, but one of the clips that I'm going to share with you, Laura, is this lovely one that he had about mushrooms. And um, I hope you'll be able to play um, a section of that with the listeners, just because um, it, it's an insight into how he kind of crafted his reviews and the ways in which he had such passion about you know, I mean, passionate about everything. So, but also passionate about something that I was very passionate about. So I told him that I found truffles on Hampstead Heath, which he was astounded by because truffles are mushrooms that grow under the ground. And I just so happened to walk past a spot where a dog must have dug them up. And, you know, he was really fascinated by this. But yeah, that kind of bonding experience where he was talking so passionately about this kind of mushroom revival you know foraged fungi um element was was really nice for me and it was nice for me to find the recording and listen to it and hear how kind of um you know how well he expressed himself and his ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ideas. So with Sophie's permission, I've managed to convert one of the recordings of her interview with A.A. Gill, and I'm going to play you a small clip from it now. It's just one minute long. Just to warn you, there is quite a lot of background noise of the wind from the recording, but um, I think it's a really interesting clip and uh, I'm really happy to be able to share it with you. So here we have A.A. Gill on mushrooms. Remember that everything we know about mushrooms has been learned the hard, deadly way over hundreds of thousands of years. The death cap has killed more people than any other mushroom, possibly any other wild-growing thing. It grows in woodland and has a pale green hood, but the small ones can look very like button mushrooms, although their gills are white, not dark brown. Their death is particularly unkind, like a fairy curse. You will feel unwell shortly after consumption, gripey, and you'll worry that it might be the mushrooms you just had for breakfast. But when you get better, and for a week or two, for, for a week or two, before succumbing to hellish biblical afflictions brought on by acute liver failure, a transplant is the only cure, but is rarely in time. That's absolutely incredible. I've just had an idea for a podcast as well. I feel like you should try and do a AA Gills, AA Gills missives like yeah, podcast at some that. point. That'd be amazing. Post one every week, and you know, I think people would love to hear, you know, his voice and how he, um, you know, how he kind of expressed himself. Just it's an absolute gold mine and mm. gold mine, and I feel really anxious that these clips might be lost or you know the format in which you, they can be listened to suddenly is you know unavailable and that really scares me that these this lovely kind of treasure trove might somehow disappear yeah have you ever shared them with his daughter flora i have i have i've asked flora if she'd like them and she did say that she would um so that's something that i should follow up on because yeah. you know for her that's her legacy that's her heritage um you know and i just think it's it's such a lovely way to remember, you know, your parent if they die, you know, at a young age. And 
be nice for her to have them. It almost brings us back to the flames in a way because you you've written about these people who had died in in the past and you've brought them back to life with your stories and you've actually got this gift of these recordings from A.A. Gill who has now sadly died you could I feel like you should do something with them yeah that's all I'm gonna say right (laughs) um so how did you make the move from being a food writer to a novelist yeah so I think I had the idea for the novel back in 2015 and it wasn't published until um, 2022 you know how long <laughs> the publishing process can be um, but also how long the writing process can be so for at least three years I was writing the novel researching the novel alongside my full-time job as a food journalist um, and and that was you know a really intense period of my life because you know you've got your deadlines you've got the demands of a kind of busy job you're also writing a book that you don't know that anybody's ever going to read I was getting up in the hours before work and um, you know getting a thousand words written before I left for the office and I never dreamt really that anybody would sit down and read those words and it has been a kind of surprise for me that it, it it's gone out into the world in this way and that it's been received so positively. Um, So I think when I left the Sunday times in 2018, that was the point at which, you know, I knew I was going to miss food journalism, but I also really believed in um, the idea for the novel. And I, that was the point at which I decided to take it really seriously. Um, I entered a few first chapter competitions and I was really lucky to win the Impress Prize for New Writers, um, their their prize for the, for the opening chapters of The Flames. And after that, I got um, I, I got an agent. I signed with Juliette Mushens, which was she was my dream agent. She is my dream agent. And, you know, she helped me get the book, you know, polish different bits of it up um, so that we could submit it to um, publishers and I was lucky enough to get a two book deal with Doubleday which was just something that was beyond my wildest dreams so um, I think I've been incredibly lucky with my writing career I feel like I've been incredibly lucky with my journalistic career as well you know I've had some amazing experiences and you must know that to be a food journalist it's very different from being you know, the kind of journalist who's doing, you know, quite unpleasant things like going to try and get people to talk when they've had terrible experiences, you know, so to be somebody who's being sent free food and then being invited to restaurants doesn't quite feel like the kind of hard hitting edge that some, some people associate with journalism. Um, But yeah, I think making that transition and having worked in a newsroom like the Sunday Times where standards are very high um pressure's very high it was certainly a um time in journalism which perhaps has eased off a bit now but there was a lot of um quite vocal uh opinions going around shall we say so you had to really operate at a very high standard um and people would not be afraid to tell you if you if your standards dropped. And so I think that learning to operate under that amount of pressure sets you up very well for um, a world in publishing, you know, or when you get your first reviews, you know, if you get bad reviews, it doesn't, you know, you're used to taking criticism, you're used to being edited, 
you're used to people, you know, having different opinions about how your work could be. Um, and I think that's incredibly healthy, actually. And I think it set me in really good stead for my life as an author. True, although I would say it almost goes the opposite way as well in the sense of uh, when you go from a really busy news writing job to a you've got a year's deadline to write this 100,000 word <laughs> book. It's actually really difficult because it's the slow life and I need those deadlines to That's get anything done. That's absolutely true. That is true. I don't know how I operate within that, but I think, yeah, setting your own small deadlines, but mm. it can feel it can feel strange to then be left to your own devices and not have somebody, you know, breathing down your neck. But Yeah, it's really hard. I, on that note, I wanted to bring up something really brilliant that you said on Chloe Timms's podcast, Confessions mm. of a Debut Novelist, which if I've remembered rightly, you said that you shouldn't pin your happiness on a particular achievement. So oh. in our case, um, getting a novel published. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> I mean I'd like to think I sounded profound in that way yes I'll I'll take that <laughs> I'll listen back and double check that it was you but I'm sure it was but I wanted to to, to ask you to so going back to passion and food mm. and art what do you think are the dangers of basing your career around a personal passion so for example when we're artists or writers or chefs mm. I think that's such a good question Laura and the thing that springs to mind first for me and perhaps this doesn't answer your question in the right way but um, for me the flames was a passion project it was something that I felt in my soul and it felt like getting those characters out onto the page was something that I lived and breathed for five years and I dreamt about these women I know the artist inside out I you know it, it just feels like it's part of me and the amount of passion that goes into a book like this that is historical fiction it is biographical fiction it's based on real people um you feel such a weight of responsibility for them um and you feel a love for them you know i i definitely love my characters um and i feel a tenderness for them that um you know will last will stay with me my entire life And then I think it's very interesting because my second book is also about an artist and the women who inspired his greatness. And I got a two book deal and this was pitched as part of, you know, me getting my book deal. And I love the characters. I'm interested in them, but it isn't a living, breathing passion project in the same one that my first one was. And actually, I found that I found it a completely different process I've been disconnected from that kind of heartbeat of the book, um, perhaps a little bit more, but in some ways it makes it easier. And in some ways um, I've been surprised by the feedback from my editor and that she loves this book. She loves the characters. She loves the insight. She really feels that I've captured, you know, the inner interior worlds of these women. And that really surprised me because Mm -hmm. you can put so much passion into something and you can um, live and breathe it. And almost that can be suffocating or sometimes it can um, take you away from the work, which is just to tell a great story, to imbue the reader with a sense of um, the world that this artist and the women uh, lived in. Um, And so sometimes passion is a wonderful thing. And sometimes I feel like um, you can tone it down a little bit and still be 
as effective and perhaps more so, which came as a complete surprise to me. I suppose it's basically the evolution of turning a passion into a job, a, a, a career, because you have that, it starts off with the passion project, but then after that, you, you can't necessarily live off passion alone. That's and right. so it makes sense that your passion for writing those novels just kind of evens out and becomes a little bit more sort of measured in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, but that it makes sense, sense to me. No, it does. <laughs> I think, yeah, you've got to it gets spooned out, you know, to continue the food metaphor, you have to spoon it out more consistently and mm. more steadily, you know, like love itself, you know, you fall in love, and it's very passionate, and it's all consuming, but you can't sustain that over, you know, a particularly long period of time. And what, what emerges as a result of that deep love, and then that turns into something that is a more sustainable love. And I think that's, that can be completely beautiful in its own way and in a different way yeah that's so so true I would like to finish off by asking you the questions that I ask everyone on this oh, yeah. podcast that are a little bit more quick fire questions so your relationship to food fuel or pleasure oh absolutely pleasure favorite meal of the day lunch I am always ravenous around lunchtime and yeah lunch is definitely my favorite meal does your husband cook that for you uh yes mostly <laughs> name one meal that always makes you feel happy oh it would be tacos Mm. I'm a I'm a really slow eater usually but my gosh put a taco in my hand and it disappears in about three seconds so (laughs) favorite tacos oh um probably anything just slathered in cheese and guacamole and nice really hot spicy chilies so anything like that nice one food that has healed you Oh gosh, I think if I'm sad or if I'm in a bit of a rut, I always turn to crumpets, Mm. Um, really well toasted. They have to be really crispy and they have to have loads of butter on them. And yeah, I think crumpets have got me through some really dark days, (laughs) like my comfort food. One dish that reminds you of family? Oh, I would say a fondue. Um, it's very 80s all that melted cheese all that kirsch which is the kind of clear brandy that gets you dip the bread in the brandy then you dip the bread in the cheese and it's like this big mouthful of melted cheese I just for me that that is such a family meal it just seems very indulgent very decadent but you know definitely reminds me of my family and one recipe that everyone should know how to cook um a risotto. I'm, as I've said, I'm quite a, uh, a lazy cook. <laughs> I can cook and I'm good at cooking, but um, yeah, being able to make a risotto, you can put anything in it. It's a fail safe way to impress people. Um, yeah, it's kind of basic, but fancy, which I like about it. And mushrooms are perfect with it. Yes, so. you're absolutely right. Tons of mushrooms. Your best meal ever? Oh my gosh, my best meal ever. I would say I've been to some really great restaurants, Michelin-starred restaurants, kind of fine dining. And weirdly, I think it's always the places that have a sense of discovery that are my favorite meals. So a small backstreet place that you stumble over on holiday that you're never going to find again, that just had the best spicy prawns or, um, you know, the best gazpacho or you know I just think a little place in Bangkok that was like 
making Tom Yum in a car park. You know, just mm-hmm. you couldn't ever recreate what makes that moment so special, but it's the discovery of something. It's, um, you know, that new element. Yeah, for me, I think that's what makes food the best ever. Yeah. And finally, some food for thought. What is the one piece of advice you would give to anyone about food and passion? Well, food and passion. I actually wanted to read an A.A. Gill quote, and it's quite a controversial one, but I think it really sums up um, some of the stuff we have been talking about. Yeah, let's do Um, it. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. So this is A.A. Gill. I would rather grow another chin than forgo a single spoon of clotted cream or foie gras or sachetort. We none of us know how many dinners are left to us. To look back and realise you'd wasted any of them on egg white omelettes, green salads without dressing or pumpkin and broccoli mush would be too distressing. As Oscar Wilde said, a sexless boar is a woman who knows the calories in everything and the taste of nothing. Oh, that's incredible. Is that from <laughs> when he knew that he was dying or is that from before? I think that will have been from before, yeah. But oh, it's wow. so poignant and it's so perfect. And for me, it sums up this idea that food is pleasure and food is passion. And I think, yeah, passion and food are so closely entwined that it seemed to really capture that. I love that. Thank you so much for finding that quote and for sharing it with us. That's that's such a cool, cool thing to hear. And it's so true as well. I'm, I love that. I'm going to live by that. Well, I think I already yeah. do, actually. But Good. <laughs> oh, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me. It's been amazing. Oh, Laura, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. I really, it's such a joy to be on this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find Sophie on Instagram at underscore Sophie Haydock underscore. And you can find her other other account at Egon Sheila's Women. And I've put those links in the show notes. The Flames is out now in hardback and will be out in paperback in April 2023 in the UK. And it's also coming out in the US. And it's available in translated versions all around the world. So you can buy it in bookshops and online. It is a masterpiece. You can also buy my novel, Single Bald Female, in paperback in the UK now, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Price Writes or on Twitter at Laura Price Write to hear more about my podcast and my writing. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd love it if you could give it a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This was a bonus episode, but that really does signal the end of season two, but I'll hopefully see you back here for season three soon. Until then, thank you for listening to Life in Food with Laura Price. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.